The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. MG is back. And it's electric. The MG ZS EV. From just €28,995, the truly affordable, family-friendly electric range. Go to mg.ie and recharge your soul. Hello there and you're very welcome to the second chapter of our Ask Me Anything edition of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. We asked you, our listeners, to send in questions for us to answer and just a note that we did record this podcast just before Christmas so it is always possible that something that we said may have been overtaken by events. Anyway, before we get going, I do want to draw your attention to the Irish Times' upcoming Winter Nights Festival which features a range of in-depth discussions between various Irish Times journalists, including myself, and significant public figures, everybody from Edna O'Brien to Dara O'Brien to Nicola Sturgeon to Micheál Martin and many, many more. The festival runs online from January the 25th to the 29th and tickets are €50 or €25 for Irish Times subscribers. Just go to irishtimes.com slash winternights to find out more. And with us on today's show, the full politics team of Pat Leahy, Harry McGee, Jennifer Bray and Jack Horgan-Jones. So let's get straight to it. A couple of questions about the third party in government, the Green Party, Harry, which I'd like you to address, uh, please. Uh, Kieran O'Sullivan um, says, given the compromise and infighting since joining the government, is there any route for the Greens to retain any seats at all in the next general election? And then Emma Maskman on Twitter asks, with all the Green Party drama this year, will a new eco-party form in the next five years? Yeah, they're very interesting questions, um, Hugh, and I'll deal with them um, w- one by one. Um I think the Greens are going to find, I mean, they found government extraordinarily difficult the last time because they ended up losing all of their seats, but it happened during an unprecedented economic crisis. I think they will have difficulties here. I think COVID in the opening years of government will present a difficulty for them. I think the second difficulty for the Greens is that they're not the smaller party in a two-party government. They're the smaller party in a three-party government. And I think the, the way the dynamics of that coalition will work is that the, Green, uh, the Greens will struggle uh, to get their message and to get their policies uh, across. They did exceedingly well in the budget in terms of getting green issues across the line. The difficulty with a lot of green issues is that it takes a long time uh, between decision and implementation. And the fruits of some of those policies will not be witnessed until long after uh, the Greens have departed uh, from government. Uh, they haven't been helped by the infighting that's happened. And we saw another example of it this week uh, with the row over this uh, trade deal between Europe and Canada. So I, I, I think that uh, the Greens will get a will probably get an electoral mauling after the next election and will come back certainly uh, diminished in numbers and might even be uh, uh, eviscerated. In relation to the prospect of a new Green Party or a new ecological or environmental or climate change party, I think the possibility of that is quite real. I think that some of the people who departed the Green Party uh, were very... Uh, um, 
were, were very motivated uh, by some of the kind of the ground campaigns uh, that have occurred in the past uh, number uh, of years and would have a more radical uh, outlook than the Greens. And there's a kind of emerging of climate change uh, uh, policies uh, with just transition, uh, social justice policies that would place them very close to the parties on the left, like People Before Profit and the Socialist Party. Uh, there's a just transition ginger group there at the moment, uh, which is semi-detached from the Green Party. And I think at some stage, I think that that is going to uh, uh, leave the Green Party and become a new party. How well it will do, we just don't know. Uh, but they could get one or two seats after the next election. So, Jack, obviously Brexit figures in the questions which we've received in from listeners and specifically the whole question of the relationship between this country and its nearest neighbour. Hello, team. Leo from Cork here. How badly do the panel believe Anglo-Irish relations have been damaged by Brexit, Boris and the backstop? Thank you. So I think I think inevitably uh, they've they've been quite profoundly damaged and. Um, and I think that, you know, that that's a function of Ireland's particular and peculiar role in the whole Brexit kind of psychodrama. You know, we, we are embedded into their economy in a way that uh, that, that the rest of Europe isn't. Uh, we share the only external land border that they're going to have with the European Union. Um, and, and also uh, partially as a function of those reasons and because of the difficult and vexed political conversations that had to be had around that border and how to manage it. The role of the DUP and the Theresa May government, and all these, all these different, you know, competing factors, Ireland and Irish politicians, and and to a large extent, uh, Leo Varadkar, in a in a personalised sense, um, and to a lesser extent, some of his colleagues, you know, became uh, totems in in, in the pro Brexit uh, British political press, and um, so you know we've become kind of reified in in that in that debate in a way that is unusual for Irish politicians who don't usually, and, and the Irish political system, which doesn't usually get much of a seat, of it, a seat at the table in terms of British current affairs or, or British public discourse. Um, I, think, I think behind the scenes, uh, like at official level, probably the, the, the damage hasn't been quite as profound. And, and I think you would find that there is still a semblance of, of decent working relationships between Whitehall and, and Dublin. Um, but again, I think it's it's inevitable that you know the the kind of toxic nature of of British politics at the moment, and and the 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 kind of haphazard seat of the pants brinksmanship that goes on uh, has filtered down and and made those relations more difficult. And um, the question, I suppose, really is is that you know with the with 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 things so badly scarred arising from Brexit, um, and and you know presuming that we get some kind of a, a trade deal. How or when will they be will will they be repaired? You know, and and how will bilateral relations affect exports and imports between the two country countries? Because you know we have to reach some kind of understanding for the sake of of particularly the agri food sector, and um, because you know they are so dependent on on the British market. So to to sum it up, you know, quite badly damaged, and and it is massively important that you know that that that, that damage is addressed uh, going forward. I'm not quite sure exactly how how we will do that i would hope that i kind of if there is a if there is a kind of a, a quietening of of british politics once boris johnson gets brexit done if things kind of revert to the mean and, and get a bit less hectic over there then you know there will be an associated an associated you know cooling of the tensions that exist between both ireland and the uk and and the eu 
and the UK. But you know, there's a lot of ifs, what what ifs and conditionals in there. Um, and as with all things Brexit, um, it's not it's not easy to be absolutely definitive about how or whether this is going to be fixed. Uh, Pat, you've spoken on this podcast previously about the way that the bonds which have been built up since the peace process of the 1990s have been loosened by the by the Brexit process over the last couple of years. I mean, obviously, there's a north-south element as well as the east-west uh, one, trade one, which, which Jack was mentioning there. Maggie Stanfield and Dan Patrick says, I cannot envisage any way in which the muddled and convoluted mix of Northern Ireland to the EU for goods but not services and unable to export import freely in and out of the UK can possibly work as a passionate Remainer and also a committed nationalist, though with no party alignment, I see only one sensible and pragmatic way forward, a 32-county Ireland or a new Ireland or whatever nomenclature you might choose to use. What do you think? Well, I think that's an argument that we will hear more and more of over the coming years. One of the things that's happened this year, and as far as we're supposed to be doing a review of the year here, is that I think the question of a united Ireland moved uh, closer to the centre of political debate um, in, uh, in, in, in the South. And that's due to a couple of things. Brexit, of course, it's due to a campaign, uh, determined campaigning by pro, uh, by pro unity people, many of them in, uh, Sinn Fein, but, but extending beyond Sinn Fein as well. And it's due to the political success of Sinn Fein, uh, in the 2020 general election and, uh, and, and, and for that party, the project of Irish unification is uh, probably its single biggest, um, uh, its single biggest priority. So um, I think we'll hear, uh, I think we'll hear a lot more of it. As to the question of, you know, Anglo-Irish relations, uh, I think Jack is right about the commercial and economic, the undermining of the commercial and economic links between the the two countries and the very real fallout that there will be for that uh, from that for many businesses particularly in the uh, uh, in the agri food uh, but not limited uh, but but not limited uh, to that area but i think the possibly the biggest damage that has been done is that the government in dublin no longer thinks that the government in the uk is that interested in or serious about Northern Ireland. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think that sense of the, you know, the management of the latter stage peace process and the assistance and husbanding of the Good Friday institutions, assistance to and husbanding of the Good Friday institutions was very much a, uh, when it worked well, was uh, always a joint project by the government. I think there was something of a reviving of that when Julian Smith was the uh, the Northern Secretary, but um, but he was the exception amongst recent uh, Northern Secretaries in the uh, in the British government. And I think that the present uh, incumbent Brandon Lewis uh, is a reversion to um, is probably a reversion to previous form in that regard. And I think that is one of the things. I think there's a a very significant job of work, as Jack says, to be done in rebuilding relations at political and administrative level with between Dublin and London in the wake of Brexit. And that would be one of the most uh, most important aspects of it, I think. 
Okay, well, talk of Irish unity inevitably brings us to questions about Sinn Féin. We've had quite a few of those. Um, Here's one from Anthony Sheridan. Why is the link between the rise of Sinn Féin and the ongoing disintegration of the political centre ignored by mainstream media? Almost all comment and analysis surrounding this historic evolution focuses on attacking Sinn Féin on behalf of and in defence of the political centre. There is virtually no analysis or comment as to why this is happening. Um, so thanks for that, Anthony. And I'm going to add to that a, a, a similar question from Kean Farrell, who says, how does the Irish Times and the media writ large deal with growing claims of bias against parties on the left? There does seem to be a bit of a revolving door between government buildings and Tara Street, which is clearly a massive conflict of interest. Would a ban on this practice, similar to a lobbyist ban, work? So these are both really about the relationship between the media and political parties and accusations, which we all know are out there, of, uh, of a specific prejudice against, against Sinn Féin. Harry, what do you think? Yeah, they're very interesting um, questions. And um, I, I, I don't think that you can completely uh, rebut those arguments 100%. I think I, I reject both arguments uh, and the premise behind them, but I don't reject them completely. And I'll say why. That we're working in, in, a, in an environment uh, that is like a, a big boarding school. And the thing is that you do uh, forge relationships with uh, politicians and um, journalists depend on politicians, uh, especially when they're looking for to get stories in advance. And that makes it slightly problematic when it comes to criticising politicians that suddenly uh, you have to pounce and bite the hand that feeds. And it, th- that is something that, that, as a professional journalist, that you should be able to deal with. But again, going back to the frailty of the human condition, sometimes it's hard uh, to come in in very, very hard against somebody with whom you have, you know, that, you, that you've met around the place and know, know for a long time. Now, just in relation to Sinn Féin, I, I kind of reject that an- analysis of Sinn Féin that we're, you know, that the, all of the coverage is the centre defending itself and just having sideswipes at Sinn Féin. I don't think that's true at all. I think the Irish Times in particular has spent a lot of time uh, trying to analyse uh, why uh, uh, Sinn Féin has performed well and at times badly in Irish politics since his entry to uh, national politics in 1997. And um, far from uh, the mainstream attacking Sinn Féin, I think Sinn Féin is far more of a mainstream party itself now uh, than it was uh, when it entered uh, Dáil Éireann uh, uh, some twenty, uh, some oh, oh, almost thirty, uh, almost thirty years ago now. Uh, actually, over thirty years ago now. Yeah. So uh, that the party itself a, a has evolved, or at least and I think if the party does go into government, uh, the party will be and more and of a mainstream government than one that would be identifiably uh, left. I think Sinn Féin has had a different culture. I think its uh, accession into Irish politics has made it a little bit more difficult uh, in terms of getting access uh, to its thinking. It has, tend, it has tended to be slightly more secretive, uh, slightly more guarded and slightly less willing uh, to share its thinking in the past than the mainstream parties that have been around for a long time. And as we see from their parliamentary um, party meetings every week are completely and utterly dysfunctional uh, when it comes to party discipline and what what have you. So it, it's it, it's not so much that uh, there has been any uh, attempt uh, to ward off Sinn Féin 
or to exclude Sinn Féin or to attack Sinn Féin. I think there has been just a difficulty in terms of getting access to Sinn Féin, but that has become less of a uh, difficulty uh, in, in recent years. So is the, is the media biased against uh, Sinn Féin? I think undoubtedly there are some commentators and some journalists who would be, uh, who would take a, a, a avowedly and markedly uh, anti-Sinn Féin uh, stance. Um, but we're not, you know, we're not statues. And I, I think that you have to be in a position uh, as a journalist to, to criticise a party and criticise it as fairly as you possibly can. And I mean, it's, it's, it's past and especially uh, some of the more egregious things that happened in the North cannot be ignored. And they have to be brought into the equation when one is talking about Sinn Féin in the round. But the thing is that when you're analysing them, we're not analysing them in that context to the exclusion of everything else. That is just part of a more complex picture of a party that has been evolving. And also, on the other side, of a a, a media uh, uh, industry or, or a media presence that has been evolving in its coverage of Sinn Féin as well. Um, Pat, what about this fence jumping revolving door question, which kind of does relate to this because nobody's left the Irish Times or the Irish Independent to become an advisor to um, to the to Sinn Féin. Fia Kelly, our deputy political editor, left after the election to join uh, Justice Minister Helen McEntee's team. A couple of years previously, Sarah Barden left to, to join Simon Harris. We've seen similar movement from the uh, Independent News and Media's political group. So that does... That is read in a certain way out in the broader world, isn't it? Should should we as journalists be concerned about how that's seen? In a way, we're kind of the worst people to <laughs> to, to to answer this question. I think it's one kind of for the readers to make up their minds on. I suppose one of the reasons why, and there's always been some traffic, I think, between political journalism and government, but it's the second, uh, which in a way isn't surprising, given that, you know, just as journalists move between uh, publications, so they move, you know, people people move jobs in the, in, in a similar area. They are two former colleagues that uh, to which you, you refer have gone to work in, in government, in part because there were a lot of vacancies uh, in government. Anytime a government is... Uh, is set up or there are changes in government, there are vacancies, ministers hire advisors, press officers uh, and so forth. And a natural place for them to look will be uh, uh, will be amongst uh, amongst political journalists. So in that sense, it's not that, su- that surprising. And it is something that you tend to see in lots of places. I think on the broader, uh, I, I, you know, I think on the broader question of which that is a I suppose is 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 part is uh, about go, goes to the heart of our you know fair and balanced and reasonable and hopefully intelligent coverage of politics and you know the readers can make up their own minds uh, they can make up their own minds on that for our part what I can say is we strive to make it all of those things um, as we're required to do not just by the way we work and the expectations within the culture of the Irish Times, but as are laid down in the uh, uh, in the articles of the Irish Times Trust, which uh, which 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 owns the Irish Times and which anybody can read 
um, uh, on on the the newspaper's website. So you know, all, all, all I can say, uh, I suppose, to listeners who have concerns about it is that we are aware of those uh, of concerns. They come from all sides of politics and from none. Tony O'Reilly. Uh, who used to own newspapers a million years ago, said all governments feel persecuted by newspapers and all oppositions feel ignored by newspapers. And I think, to be honest, that there may be something in that. Jack, we're going to have to wrap it up pretty soon, but I gather that while we were recording this, you got an extra question in from somewhere in the corridors of power. Yes, indeed. A top political source, or at least, if this isn't damning with faint praise, a mid-level political source, Texts, <laughs> texts, and, and I responded saying I was doing this, doing this podcast, and they asked, uh, and asked if they had any questions. And the question is this: What scoop from this year do you wish was yours, national or international? Ooh, Jennifer. Um, what? Um, international. Wouldn't it have been amazing to have got that story about the full story about Trump's tax returns? Could you imagine after all the years of what's in those documents, what's in his tax returns, what is he hiding, what is the state of affairs with the outgoing president to actually get all those details in black and white and then press go, you know, press publish and watch it go out into the world and watch everybody absorb it. I think that would have been phenomenal. Jack, your preferred scoop? Uh, I would have taken Golfgate. I would have taken your hand. <laughs> I would have taken your hand off to get Golfgate. I mean, uh, a fantastic scoop by Eva Grace Moore and Paul, Paul Hosford in the Examiner. Um, and you know, it's it's one that that you know it's still going on. You know, the 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 fallout from it, and and you know, it's it's spawned associated uh, you know sub crises and sub controversies. Most notably, the Seamus Wolf appointment. Um, and you know it, it's one that like other other publications have kind of distinguished themselves as well in terms of you know there's been so many follow-up stories and new new folds developing um, and and the ongoing and rolling coverage of you know the the, the Phil Hogan uh, back and forth and the extraordinary interactions with uh, interactions with Ursula von der Leyen um, you know it was just a, a, a fantastic story um, and you know it was it was really interesting from from a political point of view as well because I think it told us a lot about how people perceive politics. Um, now, I, I don't, th- I don't think that you know the the um, the gathering in uh, in the West was in any way like you know an elite kind of Bilderberg type cabal that got together to figure out how to ignore the COVID regs and, and carve up their various interests in the country at the same time. But I do think it's telling that people kind of perceived it as such. People perceived it as a political elite thumbing its nose at the ordinary people, which kind of tr- plays into a lot of the tropes of populism. And, and 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 the reaction to it and and how annoyed people were how like how how viscerally angry people were about it i think told us a lot about the maybe some of the more interesting maybe some of the more unsettling directions that politics in ireland is or or could be moving in as well yeah, I suppose it's my my favourite. It just shows how low my standards are. Is is the one about the Hungarian MEP who wrote Viktor Orbán's anti LGBT uh, constitution, who was found cavorting at a at an all male sex party in 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 Brussels. I think that that's a story to that's a story for the ages. Pat, what about you? <laughs> I think um, I, I think the story that I'm sorry that we didn't do was to foresee the uh, just how serious the pandemic would be and 
inter- interrogate uh, parties a bit more during the general election uh, about what they would do faced with the challenges of a pandemic uh, in government. I think we were probably, maybe because we were all knackered after the general election campaign, I think we were perhaps a bit slow to switch on to how serious the pandemic uh, would be. I mean, uh, just a month after the general election uh, took place, we were staring into uh, we were staring into a lockdown, and I think if we had been if we had been paying a bit more attention to international uh, events, and maybe there's a lesson uh, for us there to 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 put our heads up from time to time and look at international trends and see how they are likely to impact our country and its politics. I think um, maybe we uh, may, maybe we might have asked a few more questions about that. On that very good and cautionary note, we shall leave it there for this podcast and indeed for this year. Thanks to to Pat, to Jack, to Jen and to Harry. Um, Wishing you all a very happy Christmas and a peaceful new year, which I think it's almost certain to be given, given the circumstances. And we'll be back in your feeds in January. But until then, goodbye and good luck. 